No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. And I hope my show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Tonight, we have a special guest. We have Marianne Williamson, for 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, best-selling author, political activist, and spiritual thought leader. She's written more than 14 books, it's hard to believe, four of which have been on the number one New York Times bestseller list. She also started a project uh, called uh, Angel Food, which has served more than 14 million meals to ill and dying homebound patients since 1989. God bless you for that, Marianne. Welcome to back to the show, and thanks so much for being with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always great to talk to you, Senator. Yeah, it's always great to talk <laughs> to you too. Let me tell you, I've had the I've had the pleasure of talking to this lady several times, and she's just an amazing individual. She, she you really are, uh, Marianne. You're brilliant. Uh, you're kind, which is like one of the most important things a person can be. And uh, uh, you really are a, a change, an agent for change. So I well, want to start thank out. You. I want to start out by asking you. I read an article that you wrote about Ukraine, and one of the things you said was that American foreign foreign policy has contributed to the war in Ukraine. And I wonder how you mean that. How, how so? How has our foreign policy added to, to the, 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 you know, the beginning of the war? Some of the, uh, some of our decisions, some of our actions regarding NATO, our Aegis missiles in Poland, and I believe Romania as well, it can defi- could definitely be argued that we poked the bear. But having said that, we did not invade Ukraine. Russia did. And uh, Russia's uh, invasion of a sovereign country should not be tolerated. And I support the support that we are giving to Ukraine in its effort to push them back. Well, it's funny that you should use that expression, uh, poke the bear, because that's the first thing somebody said to me in politics 40 years ago when I started. Never poke a skunk. They said, you know, that that's that's uh, something that you 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 always have to remember. Uh, but you say that um, we shouldn't write. And by the same token, you say we shouldn't write a blank check to Ukraine. So where do we draw the line? Is there is, or, or do we have to see how the war progresses before we can decide that? Because they're talking about F-16s they're talking about tanks. 
They're talking about all sorts of things, and there's lots of controversy over what we should do and what we shouldn't do. So is there is there a, a point at which we decide of, of how much aid to give? There's a general consensus that the next six months will tell us a lot. Um, wars are gnarly things, hardly predictable. And we are now coming upon a season in that war when there will be a much greater ability to appraise uh, what is reasonable and what is not. And, you know, I know one of the most interesting things about you, I think, is that you went to Vietnam during the Vietnam War. So um, you know about war. You've seen it firsthand. And you say in, in the same article that I was reading that our our economic policy and our foreign policy can be separate from each other. They have separate demands. You you talk about Roosevelt, for example, who 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 uh, won the Second World War, or at least participated was one of the winners in the Second World War, but also uh, created the New Deal. Uh, but isn't it true that that uh, the economic recession that America faced uh, at that particular part point in our history didn't the war do as much to pull us out of that? As, as the New Deal did? Well, that, that's certainly an argument. On the other hand, I don't think anybody is seeing the war in Ukraine as uh, helpful to the U.S. economy. I'd like to go back and, and correct, um, I think, a, mis uh, a misperception, Michael. Mm -hmm. When yes. I was a teenager, when the, during the war in Vietnam, my parents did take us to Saigon but the war was still five miles outside the city. So I definitely experienced a city in what you might think of as war trauma, but it's not accurate to say I actually was in the middle of a, of a war zone. So yeah. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. Um, I was, as is obvious from that story, raised with a strong uh, recognition of the malfeasance of the what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. Now, my father fought in World War II, uh, and and proudly, certainly I would have fought. Uh, I would have fought I, if I had been Roosevelt. I would have done as he did, and obviously entered and entered the war. Having said that, at the end of his presidency, when Eisenhower warned us of the military industrial complex, he was speaking to a huge industrial behemoth that had formed after that war. It's not either or. Remember, Eisenhower both warned us about the military industrial complex and was the supreme allied commander during World War II. I'm not a pacifist. I see the U.S. military like a surgeon. If you have to have surgery, you want to have the best. But a, a reasonable human being tries to avoid surgery if at all possible. You can recognize the undue influence of defense contractors on American foreign policy. You can recognize that the military uh, budget in the United States is obscene. 
You can recognize uh, the the uh, military misadventures, even criminality to some extent, of the war in Vietnam, the war in Iraq, and most of the years we spent in Afghanistan, and still realize that this particular situation with Putin is not those. America has huge imperialistic misadventures in our past. None of us should under... Um, none of us should fail to appreciate that. None of us should uh, fail to recognize it. And all of us should uh, passionately seek to correct that. And I respect people who feel that the war in Ukraine is just another example of this. And therefore, we should stay out. I simply don't see it quite that way. I don't think that America's imperialism is justification for Russia's imperialism. So if you're going to be an anti-imperialist, you're an anti-imperialist no matter who's doing it. So I don't see uh, the United States uh, foreign policy regarding military intervention as anything close to pure as the driven snow, quite the opposite. But once again, that doesn't give a brutal dictator like uh, Vladimir Putin a pass in my mind, uh, when he seeks to not only invade a foreign sovereign nation, but also uh, look at the rest of the West in ways that could prove threatening in the future. And is there anything, do we have to really dismantle, to a certain extent, this complex, this uh, uh, military-industrial complex, don't we? Because isn't it their, just by their very nature, isn't it what they're, they're constructed to do? They're constructed to, to fight wars, and so uh, uh, do we have to figure out a way to take it apart, don't we? Well, there is a difference. It, you know, it's, it, it, it's like righteous profit versus hyper-capitalism weaponized against the people. There is a righteous um, military establishment, and then there is war profiteering. And it's war profiteering that we're all upset about. And I do think the Iraq war was an exercise in war profiteering. And I do think much of the Afghanistan war was an exercise in war profiteering. Now, I realize that with our support for Ukraine, there are profits being made by some companies that I'm not happy to see profiting. I'm no fan of, of the undue influence of the military-industrial complex exerted by uh, Boeing or Northrop Grumman or Raytheon. I'm horrified, as I think we all should be, by the fact that Lord Austin, our department, you know, our, our defense secretary, is a former uh, board member at Raytheon. I get the unholy alliance there. But in this case, you've simply got to hold some some uh, otherwise conflicting realities together at the same time. There are some juxtapositional factors here that, while not comfortable to hold on to at the same time, simply are what they are. Well, I have to agree with you. Um, I worked for a public interest. I worked for the public interest group that found out. 40 years ago that uh, Air Force was paying $800 for screws that they were using uh, in, in military aircraft. And I think we, we, we also found out they paid uh, $600 for toilet seats. Uh, so, yeah. And there's I, I no mean, auditing. 
Yeah, there's no auditing. And, you know, and it's kind of a sacred cow, isn't it, in, in, in American politics that, you know, it's one of those things. Um, it's a dangerous thing to say that you want to cut defense spending politically. Um, um, so that's a that's a big deal. But well, you know, you, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's a when you say it's a dangerous thing. It's like when someone said to me recently, "If you run for president again, you're you're committing political suicide." Well, you have to have a political career before you can kill your political career. What you just said is exactly why we need non-politicians to get in there, because people seeking to correct to protect their careers are also uh, acting in too many cases. Uh, in service to profit making of insurance companies, which is why we don't have universal health care in, 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 you know, in obeisance to profit making on the part of pharmaceutical companies, which is why you've got six, 68,000 people in this country who are dying uh, from lack of health care. We have 18 million Americans who've gone without fulfilling a, a, a prescription from their doctor because they couldn't afford the cost. It's why climate change is an ever ever growing threat because of the profit making influence profit you know our the, our government's obeisance to the profit making of big oil and big food and big cam and gun manufacturers it's not just the military industrial complex it's an entire matrix of corporate aristocrats that's why it's often called the corporatocracy this government is no longer of the people, by the people, for the people. We're of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. So whether you're talking about the war in Iraq or you're talking about the disaster in East Palestine, it's all part of the same disease, which is the corporate capture of our government. Well, um, I agree with that. Uh, i got to tell you, Marianne, I, I think that the number one thing you could do to reform politics in America is get the money out, figure out a way to do national financing or something else of elections because uh, money, I was a fundraiser for the Democratic Party, and uh, it is absolutely <laughs> the main corrupting influence in my humble opinion in politics. But before we move on to politics, and I want to talk about that, you also talk about a U.S. Department of Peace. What does that look like? What does a U.S. Department of Peace look like? Well, let's go back to that uh, military budget, $858 billion. So you've got mm -hmm. a military establishment that gets $858 billion. Your State Department gets uh, something like $60 billion, and then within that, a few billions for the USAID. The USAID is doing what is, in essence, peace-building work. And there are four factors that establish, statistically, a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violence. That has to do with expanded economic opportunities for women, expanded educational opportunities for children, the reduction of violence against women, and a general reduction in human despair. So you can't just fight wars and think that that's going to do anything other than create, you know, more and more poss uh, possibility of global cataclysm. We have to wage peace. Just like they have war games, we should be playing peace games. And I see it very much uh, analogous to allopathic medicine versus integrative medicine model. 
if you don't think that proactive cultivation of health matters through your diet, through exercise, through lifestyle decisions, and so forth, then you're simply going to wait until you get sick and seek to use external remedies to eradicate uh, or suppress the symptoms. People have moved past that. We know we have to proactively cultivate health. Sickness is the absence of health. Health isn't the absence of sickness. And same with war and peace. Peace isn't just the absence of war. It is, war is the absence of peace. You know, Franklin Roosevelt wrote, we need to do more than end war. We need to end the beginnings of all wars. And to me, that's what the Department of Peace is about. Because those statistical factors that I mentioned apply, whether you're talking about a domestic situation and a corner of a U.S. city, or you're talking about international, um, you're talking about a corner somewhere else in the world. So there used to be, there was a time in this country when great decisions of foreign policy were made with, for instance, with the State Department sitting around the table and the military sort of sitting in chairs and more towards the back of the room. And that's changed now. You've got the military people too involved in foreign policy decisions and State Department in too many cases sitting in the back of the room. It used to be at those meetings that if there was a plan to do something and someone said, oh, I don't know if we could get that past State, you know, I'm not sure the State Department would be okay with that, that used to be taken very seriously. Today, it would be met in many situations with rolled eyes and a kind of laughter, cynical laughter, like that's a quaint idea. We have to, we have to realize the undue influence of the military-industrial complex, and nothing that I said about Ukraine uh, contradicts that. Well, yeah, it, it, it really is a dichotomy, a really interesting thing to me <laughs> that Americans... Uh, are the most generous people on the face of the planet in terms of contributions to charity. But our government doesn't even rank in the top 10 in terms of how much money we give as a portion of GDP to, uh, to help others in the world. Uh, Absolutely. And what, can, and, and what can we do to break that cycle? Well, you know, we live in a democracy, right? And, and these guys are supposed to, we're all supposed to, politicians are all supposed to respond to pressure from uh, their constituents. Why do you think it is we don't put more pressure on them to do exactly what you're saying? What is because it about the, the American people? Because yeah. of the corruption. Because our government is a system of legalized bribery at this point. The, the will of the people is not represented by our uh, legislators, so much as the will of the uh, corporate donors that fill their coffers. We have three times the number of legislators in Washington. We have three times that many corporate lobbyists. So people, their voters, are talking to these people with our votes every two years and every four years. But those corporations are lobbying them every hour of every day. And you were talking before about the money in politics, and it's not reasonable to assume that we're going to be able to overturn Citizens United anytime soon. You know, one of the great tragedies of history is that Donald Trump was able to uh, appoint three corporate hacks to the Supreme Court. The only thing that can disrupt the status quo at this point, because if anything's clear, it's that the corporate duopoly is not going to disrupt itself. The only thing that can disrupt this now is through an uprising in consciousness and activism and voting among the American people.
Well, I've got to tell you that after 40 years in politics, uh, I was never so shocked as the election of Donald Trump. And I can tell you that the only positive thing for me that's ever come out of that is now that my family never asked for my political opinion, because I said prior to his election, there's no way this guy can get elected. It's, it's impossible. It can't happen. You know, he's a buffoon. He's a, uh, so uh, what do you have to say about the rise in nationalism and the kind of the intersection of this fundamental Christianity with national politics, which promoted this man? I mean, what do we do about that? We talk as Democrats, we talk about you him know, all the time, but how about his supporters? That's half of America. You say that when Trump was elected, you were shocked and that you never thought it could happen. That was not my experience. I was horrified. But I was not as surprised as other people I knew because I had traveled around this country a lot and I had seen the rage. I had seen the rage and I recognized that the rage was legitimate. We have an economically rigged system and people know it. So you had two people in 2016 who looked at voters and said, I see your rage and I validate your rage. They were named Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And it was the Democratic elite who suppressed that, that, uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign. If they had just kept their fingers off the scale, then either Bernie or Hillary would have legitimately won the, uh, would have won the primaries. And then I, I think Democrats would have been happy enough about that, felt good about it. And I don't think Donald Trump would ever have been president. But the Democrats ran that year with the message that we just needed to continue the success of the last eight years. And I knew that there were millions of people out there thinking, what success, lady? I'm drowning here. And my concern, and why I'm running for president again myself, Michael, is that the, is that the Democrats, some geniuses over there, think that that's going to be a winning message again in, 2000, in 2020, 2024. 20, the idea that, hey, the economy is doing well. The economy is doing well because there's low inflation and low unemployment. I mean, both those things are good, but they hardly, hardly speak to fundamental economic reform. We still have 85 million Americans uninsured or underinsured. We still have 50% of seniors living on less than $25,000 a year. We still have 500,000 Americans going into medical debt every year. We still have 18 million Americans going without filling a prescription from their doctor because they can't afford it. We have $15 trillion of personal debt in this country. <laughs> you know, so we're going to win by saying the economy is good. The economy is good for roughly 20% of Americans. And they, that 20% are living on an enchanted island surrounded by a sea, a vast gargantuan sea of economic despair. And if we don't offer the, uh, the American people in 2024 the option of genuine political, genuine economic reform, then I fear for what's going to happen in this country. Well, first of all, I've got to say that I was told by many people that I respect in politics that, yeah, that was my problem, that I lived in Washington, D.C., and that I was isolated and that I really didn't see what was going on in America. So in Washington, D.C., Donald Trump didn't stand a chance but, mm -hmm. you know, 
And, and, and I believe after that realization that the Democratic Party is tone deaf. We're, we're, we've, we've lost, you know, I became a Democrat. I, I say I was born a Democrat because I was an orphan at, at an early age and I had to go to work at 14 to support myself. I became a teamster. It was the first decent job I ever had. And I felt like I was a Democrat by default because they represented me. But yes, I agree with you. The Democratic Party has it, it, it is not the party that I I joined. I don't think. But let me ask you: I have been an official in some capacity at the last eleven nominating conventions. I know that you're going to announce next week that you're going to run for president. There's no way that Joe Biden won't get the nomination, given the way. The system is rigged, if, if that's what you want to call it. And uh, uh, so are you going to run as a Democrat or are you going to run as an independent? Yes, I'm running as a Democrat. And why, if that's the if the case is that that, you know, the system is rigged. We saw what happened with Bernie Sanders. I agree with you there. And I think what happened with Bernie Sanders was a result of what happened with Obama. You know, here in Washington, Hillary Clinton had the nomination all sewed up until some guy came along and realized that we were voting for him, her by default. And he brought up his name was Axelrod and he brought up Obama and Obama was able to beat her. And I think that a lot of what happened with Sanders was the fact that women felt that they had been deprived and they weren't going to let it happen again. So we see activists, female activists, for example, in the party that uh, uh, like Donna Brazil, who did, you know, things they shouldn't have done to keep Bernie, to make sure Bernie didn't get the nomination. And uh, and Biden will be a shoo If he wants to run, he'll get the nomination. I worked for Jimmy Carter. Kennedy tried to take the nomination away from him. Carter was very disliked at the time in, in the Democratic Party, and he couldn't do it. I don't think it can be done. So why run as a Democrat? Well, first of all, I don't think it was women uh, alone. I, I, I don't agree with you that no, you know, I, I, I don't the think seat of women that, who did that to Bernie. The DNC did it to Bernie. Yes, they did. Uh, and yeah, it was women so, inside the DNC, and I don't think they were alone. No, I don't. No, I mean, I, you know, I like Hillary a lot as a person, and I, you know, this was, you know, I would love to see a, obviously, I would love to see a woman president as well, but there were issues that were involved here uh, that have to do with pushing back against the corporatocracy, and that's why I was and remain such a uh, supporter of, of Bernie Sanders. Um, in terms of my own running, I understand how the political military, not the political military, the political uh, media industrial complex works. And I understand that I am saying out loud things that in this town you're supposed to not say out loud. Not that I'm saying anything everybody here doesn't know, but you're not supposed to say it, right? As right. though the people in America right. don't know it, but the people in America do know it. So I understand the effort to invisibilize me. I experienced it in 2020, so I know how that works. But it will be much easier to invisibilize me if I'm running third party. And also I'm nostalgic, as you said you are, about a Democratic Party that I grew up with. I'm nostalgic for the Democratic Party of Franklin Roosevelt. 
I believe in the idea of a major political party that is unequivocally, unequivocally in support of the working people of the United States, who's unequivocally in support of labor, unequivocally in support of a balance of private ownership with, with the commons, with the public good, with the dedication to the public good. We need, you know, for people who feel like their best work is to work with third parties, I honor that. I respect that. You know, traditionally in this country, third party voices are important. Abolition came from the abolitionist party, women's suffrage from the women's party, civil rights from the, uh, you know, didn't come from a major political party. It came from Dr. King and the Southern, you know, uh, the Christian Leadership Conference. I understand all that. But I also believe the work has to go on within the parties as well. So I'm an old-fashioned, Roosevelt kind of Democrat, and that's where my heart lies. Well, you and I both, and let me tell you that I think you're uh, a very important voice in, in the Democratic Party, and I'm glad that you're doing this. I remember how marginalized you were at the beginning of the last uh, uh, primary season. And then I remember that you appeared in the first debate and that changed significantly. Didn't put you over the top, but people started to listen. And I think the things that you have to say, Marianne, I, I mean, I'm just not blowing sunshine up your skirt here. I think they're very, very important. Maybe not the most popular things to say, as you've already pointed out, but there's things that do have to that do have to be said, and I want you to know that I contributed to your last campaign. I intend to contribute to this campaign, uh, and and I'm happy to support you in any way I can. Uh, let me say that uh, one of the things that you dealt with in the past is uh, racial reconciliation. We've seen lately a rise in things like anti-Semitism and, and you know, uh, we see Asian being beat up on the street. It's just horrible. Uh, what do we need to do in America to, to help that? And, and we've had several people on the show to talk about reparations. Should we pay reparations? Yes, absolutely. We should pay reparations. To me, it is a debt that is owed. And that's why I... Um, uh, I made reparations a, a pillar of my campaign in 2020, and I continue to stand for them. I think it's extremely important. Um, when you have almost 250 years of slavery, followed by 100 years of institutionalized oppression, oppression of a people, I don't know how we can possibly argue that we don't owe them anything. Um, so I absolutely, I don't think that America can move forward until we clean up our past. And this is a, a toxic baton that we pass generation to generation. And it, the toxicity will not end until we make what is, I believe, the moral task uh, of taking that next step that lies before our generation. I don't, I don't minimize the importance of the Civil War. I don't minimize the importance of the Civil Rights Movement. I don't minimize the importance of the Voting Rights Act, although we see how that has been gutted by the, by the John Roberts Supreme yeah. Court. I don't minimize the importance of the Civil Rights Act. But there's still a piece that we have not gotten to. And I think that if um, Martin Luther King had lived, I think that if either Humphrey or Johnson had been president rather than Nixon, I think that that step might have been taken. But the country took a different direction, and it still is hanging out there. You know, 
Senator, after World War II, Germany paid $89 billion to Jewish yeah. organizations in reparations. Yeah. So the idea of paying a, of a people that has harmed another people, paying financial remuneration, is hardly some fringe idea at all. And it shouldn't be treated like a fringe idea. And I think the soonest we get about the work of grappling with that and doing something about it and actually putting money on the table and figuring out how this is going to be done, we will continue uh, to, to burden our future generations with that toxicity of racial resentment. Yeah, I agree with that. I, um, do you have any sense of how, if, if, if we gave you $100 billion and said, uh, how, do, how do we do this? Uh, do yeah. we support HBCUs and 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 enforce affirmative action? <clears throat> do we give money to uh, the NAACP or do we give it to individuals? How do we do it? Well, first of all, for it to be meaningful, it has to be a lot more than $100 billion. Secondly, if I owe you money, I don't get to tell you how to spend it. So in this area, as in so many others, we waste millions because we don't spend billions. So this is what my plan is. My plan is for a reparations council of black leaders that, uh, all across the spectrum from uh, business leaders, cultural leaders, religious leaders, political leaders, and so forth. Um, the money to be dispersed over a period of 20 years. And then it should be black America, not white America, deciding whether it's to the historically black colleges, whether it is to real estate buys in places where gentrification is such a, uh, such a problem for people. It shouldn't be white people determining, determining exactly how the money is spent, as long as it is, as it is within agreed upon strictures of economic and educational revival. Let me ask you about, let's digress a little bit here, about Hillary Clinton. Uh, when I was in college, I did a report on, I did my senior thesis on women in work and, and what was known as occupational segregation. And 75% of the women in the workforce when I was in, war, when I was in school were found in four professions. They were nurses, they were teachers, they were domestic workers, or they were secretarial, you know, assistant types. Uh, today, we find women in every, every, every aspect of our, 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 our business world. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're judges. Uh, but yet, we are probably the only industrial country in the world that hasn't had a woman president. What do you think that's about? Misogyny runs deep. So we're and I think that there was more than misogyny at work uh, uh, with Hillary Clinton. I do think she was the victim of misogyny. I think there was a lot of irrational animus against her. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I also believe that the policies she represented and the political attitudes that she represented uh, would have in many cases been resented whether, even if she was a man. Well, what about the fact that she wasn't likable? Why do women have to be likable? I read her book, and she said she had no place to stand, which I think is an important thing to say. <laughs> she had no place to stand. If she, was, if she was feminine in any way, she was ridiculed for being weak and soft. 
if she was strong, she was masculine, and and you know she she felt like she had no solid ground to stand on. Do you think that's true for women in politics in particular? No. First of all, I want to say I think she is likable, and I and and I also think anybody you know you and I are old enough. We were there from the beginning. We saw what happened to this woman. We saw how she was treated. And so it was kind of basic psychology, understanding the kind of armor that she, that she adopted. Um, you could kind of watch her grow tougher over the years. But landing on this idea that she had to appear tougher and almost more masculine in order to be taken seriously as a uh, you know, potential ca- commander-in-chief, by the time she landed on that as part of a presidential campaign posture, that was already kind of old-fashioned. And there were a lot of women, and including younger women at the time, who thought that's not what we want leadership to look like. We don't want to feel that we have to sacrifice our, uh, the feminine within us in the name of feminism. Um, I always felt with Hillary, and I felt with Al Gore too, that if the country could have just seen more of who they really are as people, they would have done better. But she was uh, under the sway of the whole political operative class telling her how she should be. And I think if she had been in front of us, who she actually is, she would have done better. Remember that time she cried um, a bit in New Hampshire, I think it was, or I can't remember what the incident was, but she, you sort of saw a tear in her eye. Somebody said something. She said, that hurts my feelings. That wasn't an unpopular moment for her. That was a popular moment for her. Because the veneer cracked and people saw her as a human being. And that, yeah. to me, that's part of the tragedy of Hillary Clinton. I think she's actually a very warm um, and feeling human being and um, betrayed herself in many ways by not letting people see more of that. And by the way, I want to say you see more of it now. She say, I have not been in touch with her personally or anything, but she seems to have broken through to something much lighter. And um, I, when you look at her and hear her now... Um, at least when I've seen her on television, I, I see a, a more authentic self. Yeah, I agree with that. And and certainly the press plays a big role in all this. You know, we had a we had a uh, a police chief who was a woman, a woman named Kathy Lanier, and she was an amazing woman. And uh, there was an incident where there was a sniper. And uh, a police officer, a uh, sharpshooter from the D.C. police department, took the guy out and killed him. And as he walked away, uh, Kathleen Neer hugged him. And the press immediately jumped on that. And they said, why did you hug him? And, of course, Lanier turned around and said, because he looked like he needed a hug. You know, and, and, and so the press, uh, I also can tell you at the Iowa caucuses, that I went to the Trump party and there were 25 cameras there. And at the Hillary Clinton party, there were, there were two. So, yeah. you know, the, the yeah, there, there's, there's certainly co-conspirators yeah, in, in all this stuff. But and we I don't know how also we can it. remember how many times it's women, not men. Many times it's women as well. Not just men. I mean, sometimes it's yeah. women as well who make it very hard for other women there's yeah. a lot of covert, internalized misogyny. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes it's women who make it harder for other women. Absolutely. Today they re- uh, released <laughs> results that 64% of 
of Americans polled believe in a woman's right to choose, and uh, but also more women are against abortion than, than men. So yeah, it, it, it is very internalized. I remember one of my mentors, Dick Gregory, lecturing us and saying, uh, uh, America has always had an underclass and made them internalize the um, kind of prejudice uh, that, that they, they exude. So that's absolutely true. Well, I think you're a very important voice and, and what do you hope to accomplish by, by running for president? Do you hope to reform, bring some reform to the Democratic Party or, or wake up all of us sleeping Democrats that, that you know, uh, need to wake up and, 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 and see that half of America doesn't agree with us? What do you want to do? Oh, Michael, no Republican would ask that question. I hope to become president of the United States. You know, right. anybody who claims that that's impossible might not have noticed that Donald Trump became president. Well, and absolutely. We're being, asked, we're being asked to limit our political imaginations in this country. We're being asked to think that low unemployment, low inflation is the best that we can get. You know, when you were talking about things that, you know, people in this town do not agree with, it's important to remember that people in this country do agree. You could look at poll after poll. The American people want universal health care, for instance. The American people want paid family leave. The American people want free child care. The American people want tuition-free college. And the American people are realizing that these are the rights of every citizen in every other advanced democracy in this world. And Americans are waking up and going, well, then why can't we have that? And they have been told by the political classes that it's complicated. Uh, by, by the Republicans, they're told, oh, it's socialism. By the Democrats, they're told it's complicated. It's not complicated. It is corrupt. It is a political system which, because of the undue influence of corporate money, is institutionally resistant to opening the door, opening the portal, which will allow the American people to experience on the part of their government the policies that actually help them thrive. Now, I believe that what we need is a president who recognizes that and a president who says so. I wouldn't be doing this. It's too hard to do. And I've done it before. I'm not naive. It's not fun every day, let me tell you. But I'm not doing it just to change the conversation, Michael. I'm not doing it just to have a voice or to move the, the, the Democratic Party left. It doesn't work that way. We don't have that much time. And I believe that if the Democratic Party uh, does not offer to the, to the American people in 2024 a genuine fundamental economic alternative to what the Republicans will be throwing at us, then the Democrats will not win in 2024. That's why I'm doing this. Well, and, and I would say, let me apologize because I trained... Oh, there's nothing Ken. to apologize for. No, don't no. get me wrong. You didn't say anything offensive. I'm just pointing no. out that we've no, been sort I, of trained to think this kind of thing isn't possible. Whereas the Republicans go, why not? Right. <laughs> That's well, how Trump and, wants. And I want to say that I train candidates, and it's one of the first things we say to them. If you don't want to win, don't run. You know, if you don't believe that you're in it to win, don't run. So, so I, yeah, exactly. I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, but it is a heavy lift. And uh, but people need to do it. They, they really need uh, uh, or you just end up with the same old, same old. Um, anything we can do to reform inside the Democratic Party, the process 
to make it more open to candidates who aren't, uh, you know, just uh, 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 brought up through the party. Like, uh, you know, what can we do to mitigate what happened to Bernie Sanders? Well, unfortunately, what happened to Bernie Sanders also happens on the congressional level. Uh, look at uh, candidates such as Nina Turner, for instance. Uh, the Democratic Party is afraid of its biggest base. It's afraid of its progressive base. And it's interesting because they look at progressives and say that progressives hijack the party. But actually, they're the ones who hijack the party. We are Franklin and Eleanor, and they're the DuPonts and the Morgans. So uh, at this point, we have to recognize the problem where it lies, and that is the efforts of the establishment corporatist Democrats to suppress the voices of those they, they see as, as a threat to their perch. So once again, the only thing that is going to change this, the only thing that's going to disrupt that system is an awakening among the people because the status quo will not disrupt itself. The status quo will not disrupt itself. And at this point, um, you know, it would be a miracle uh, for a candidacy such as mine uh, to actually get the nominations of the Democratic Party. But number one, I believe in miracles. And number two, Somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to crack that code. I believe that. Bernie came very close. Bernie uh, was within striking distance of the presidency. And we just have to keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. It's going to be somebody. I believe it with all my heart. Because something's going to have to change in this country. If, if we don't, you know, John F. Kennedy said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. I don't know how much more proof the Democratic elite need after what happened in 2016. People are angry out there. And Franklin Roosevelt said that we would never have to worry about a fascist or a communist takeover as long as democracy delivered on its blessings. That's what's wrong in this country. Democracy is not deliberating on its blessings. And that would mean universal health care. That would mean tuition-free college. That would mean uh, free child care. That would mean paid family leave. That would mean a livable wage. If democracy is not delivering on its blessings, then we should expect the threat of authoritarianism. And that will not improve, that situation will not improve until we, as a democratic party, are willing to give people their due, give people the same things that the citizens of every other advanced democracy have. These American people are waking up to the major theft, the institutional theft that has gone on here over the last 48 years, $50 trillion that's been moved from the bottom 90% to the 1%. The American people have begun to realize they're being played. They've been played. And I, I, I think they're rumbling. And if somebody, you know, if somebody's, you know, all you have to do is uh, read some history about the French Revolution and you'll realize that uh, uh, the, the crowd is closer to the gates of the Bastille than some people in a town like this might realize. And if they're too lazy, if they're too intellectually lazy to read about the French Revolution, just read Yertle the Turtle. So we're either going to have some really... Some, an age of chaos, or we are going to take a U-turn. And I, my suggestion is that we make a wise and responsibly directed U-turn, that we make a wise and responsible transition from a war economy to a peace economy, make a wise and responsibly directed 
transition from a dirty energy economy to a clean energy economy, that we make a wise and responsibly directed change in the direction of all those issues I've talked about, from free health care to a livable wage to tuition-free college and so forth. If we do not offer that to the American people, then I honestly say, Senator, God help us. Well, I, you know, if anybody can wake America up, Marianne, I think it's probably somebody that's written 14 books and had four New York <laughs> Times bestsellers. Uh, so uh, I hope that, that, that that's the case. And I agree. Uh, but the party itself, it's become so much about winning. I think the most cynical thing that I've ever heard, and, and, and it embarrassed me to be a Democrat, was that the Democratic Governors Association put millions of dollars into supporting Trump candidates in the primaries because they thought they would be easier to beat in a general election. And in fact, they did beat some of those candidates in the general election, but they didn't beat all of them. And it seemed to me that that was just the most cynical thing I'd ever heard of, that we were going to support people that we didn't agree with because we thought they'd be easier to beat. So is there something in, internally we can do in the Democratic Party, or is it all up to the people outside the party? Well, you know, we're not a monolith. We're not a monolith in this country, and we're not a monolith within the Democratic Party. And you never know what people are thinking, what's going on inside people. Never know. You know, you have conversations like the one that you and I are having. There might be people out there going, this is crazy. There might be people out there going, you know, she's right. That's what's popular. That's why public dialogue is important. That's why free speech is important. This country does change. You know, sometimes it takes us a long time. Uh, uh, we're in denial about a lot of things. But once the American people awaken to some truth previously unseen, tremendous changes can and do happen. So I believe in the, in the possibility of radical change in this country. Uh, it's just that we are no longer living at a time when we're going to continue to idle in neutral. It's not, uh, it's not sustainable. This is going to break one way or the other. You can't have the kind of income inequality that we have in this country. You can't have the kind of economic suffering that we have in this country. 64% of American people living paycheck to paycheck. 60% of Americans unable to uh, afford an unexpected $400 expenditure. The extraordinary credit card balance alone is $925 billion in the third quarter of 2022. That's how large the personal debt is in this country. You can't, that can't continue. People are either going to express themselves with dysfunctionally or we are going to provide an opportunity for people to feel that this can break, that the situation we can, in the words of Martin Luther King, revolutionize the economic landscape of this country through peaceful and responsible and wise means. That's what, to me, the Democratic Party should stand for. And that, to me, is what would help the Democrats make the Democrats win in 2024. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I find it very disheartening. When I got out of college, I assumed that I would get a good job. And I looked in the newspaper, and it wasn't a great job, but I got a decent job that put me on a, on a, on a path to success. 
my children, I have three college graduates, uh, none of them feel that way. None of them. Exactly. None of them, Exactly, Senator. Not During the nineteen, exactly. That's it. What you just said. That's it. And that's something very significant about what you said. They went to college. Right. That you know, <laughs> this is not the way it's supposed to be. That so many people who have done everything right are doing everything right, even might have gotten a higher education and still can hardly make it in this economy. That means something's very, very wrong. You know, during the 1970s, the average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford a vacation every year, could afford for one parent to stay home if they wanted, and could afford to send these kids to college. That was in the 1970s. Yeah. And that was before this neoliberal, hegemonic, unfettered, capitalistic weaponizing of our economy against the people of the United States. That was before the emergence of this corporate aristocracy that is sucking the life juice out of our democracy and, and sucking opportunity out of our workers and out of the lives of our young. If the people do not push back against this, the situation will not change. And I think it's time for that. And that's a, that's a message that does way more than just change the conversation. If that message is taken to heart by enough people, it will change the country. Well, I hope you're right, and I'm glad we're running out of time here, and I'm glad that you came on the show, and I hope you'll be back again sometime as this campaign of yours progresses, and uh, I certainly would, you know, I'm happy to help it in any way I can, because I, like I well, said, I think you're an you. important voice. Thank you so much, and for people who want to attend here in Washington, who want to attend live, uh, you can register uh, at Marianne.live because the, uh, the announcement will be at Union Station uh, on Saturday, March 4th at 2 p.m. And uh, or people can watch it live streamed on my social media channel. And uh, well, I'm very yeah. grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I hope people will do that. And I certainly would be there, but unfortunately, Mrs. Brown is taking me to the beach next weekend. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly, uh, uh, I, it would be a domestic problem for me if I were to disappoint <laughs> Well, her. that's so, not unfortunate. That's a beautiful thing, but maybe you'll watch it when you get home. Watch it online. I, Thank you I so much. And I certainly will. And we dedicate a song every uh, every at the end of every show to our guests and here's one from John Mayer uh, which I think says it all waiting on the world to change and uh, uh, thank you Marianne Williamson we'll see you next week folks thank you thank you thank you so much yeah thank you